I wonder if you've ever found yourself worn out by somebody else's questions. If you are a teacher, this has probably happened to you, particularly if you teach younger kids, uh, kids maybe who constantly ask, will this be on the test? Uh, When will the test be? When will you have a pop quiz? Uh, Questions along those lines maybe have worn you out. If you're a parent, I know you've had times that you've been worn out by somebody else's questions. I have, certainly. I've got three small kids, uh, eight, five, and three, and there have been moments where I've just wanted to say, you know what? I'm on vacation from questions. I check out from questions. I'm not here. Uh, We just completed a vacation about a week or so ago. We drove to and from Colorado, 16-hour drive each way. And about a couple hours in, after we had eaten our breakfast in the car, really right after we finished breakfast, the questions began. Uh, When is lunch? What are we having for lunch? How long till we get there? When can I play with that toy that my brother has Uh, When can we listen to a certain song? And they just go on and on and on the questions until eventually, again, you go, you know, uh, I'm not here. This is my vacation too, and I'm on vacation from those questions. And that never works. The questions continue and continue and continue. And I think the reason for it when we're talking about small kids is because they really don't have a good concept of time, do they? A five-year-old doesn't understand what an hour means, two hours. So my five-year-old daughter would ask, will we be there in two hours? And I'd say, no, it's more like six hours. And they get quiet for a minute. She goes, is that more than or less than 100 minutes? (laughs) And so go, that is more than 100 minutes. So is that more than 12 days? No, less than 12 days, right? And so there's no real sense of time. And because of that, you don't really know uh, if they understand what's going on. So the questions continue because they're fearful about the future. If we're not eating dinner right now, we may never eat dinner. It may not ever happen. Until that moment when you can say, all right, we're pulling into the restaurant right now. This is where we're eating. This is what we're going to have. The questions will continue because kids, by their very nature, are short-sighted. Now, the truth is we laugh at that, but as adults, we aren't always that different. We tend to be short-sighted as well. For some, it may be you just live according to the moment. Whatever brings you pleasure right now, whatever provides you security right now, whatever makes you feel important right now, those are the things you focus on and you forget about the results or consequences of your actions in a day, in a week, in a year, in 10 years. And we've all known people, maybe you're one of those people, that you cannot seem to think long-term and live for the present day. Now, others, you say, now, I'm great at planning. I know what I'm going to have for lunch after church. I lined it up five years ago. I have a (laughs) five-year dining plan, and I know what I'm going to do. You say, I've got a retirement plan. I know in 20, 30 years, I'm going to have enough. I've got a plan for my career. I've got a plan for my future. And you're great at planning. You plan 5, 10, 15, 30 years down the line. That's great. But the reality is that even though we might be okay at planning for our life a few years down the line, at least in certain areas, often we are bad at planning for eternity. And so we plan for the future, but our future horizon is still very short. And we only think about this world and this life and how things will affect us right now. That is a part of the fall. And it's part of the human condition that we lose sight of the values of God and the fact that God is timeless and eternal and will last forever. And so will we. And so our greatest goal in this life 
is to think about and plan for eternity, to take the long view of life and arrange our values accordingly. When we look at Malachi, we see a group of men and women in the nation of Israel, about 450 BC, who had the same problem in many ways. They struggled with only thinking about their life in terms of how it would affect them now. And as a result, they asked God lots of questions about his character, about his righteousness, about his justice, because they said, look, it doesn't seem that you punish the wicked and reward the righteous. Because you don't do that, we have a hard time trusting you because our life right now doesn't look like we would want it. They had returned from Babylon. They had returned from exile. God had allowed them to begin rebuilding their community, the walls of the city and the temple, and yet still, they struggled to trust God because they struggled with poverty. Their crops didn't grow as they wanted. They struggled to see the future. What did God have in store? When is the Messiah coming? Is he ever coming? And as a result, they asked all these questions of God about his justice, about his promises, about his righteousness, but they used those questions as an excuse not to obey. And so they began to slip into sin. And often sin occurs in our life when we fail to take the long view of God's promises and we begin to look at just now and we say, I can't trust God that he'll fulfill his promises because he's not fulfilling them here, now, today. So we get greedy, lustful, angry, anxious, worried because we don't trust God. Malachi writes to these men and women and he says, the questions you're asking are leading you to a story that is false. What kind of story do you tell yourself when you're tempted to sin? When that moment comes and you say, I don't have enough money. I can't trust God. I got to find some other way to get it or to hold it back. I can't give. When you're tempted perhaps to look at something on the internet or to use your body in some way that is dishonoring to God, what kind of story do you tell yourself? Can I trust God to meet my needs, to provide for me in every way, even if it's not what I want right now? Or do I take what God has not given? That's what the men and women of Malachi are struggling with. And what Malachi does is he says, you need to look a lot further than just now. You need to look past your present circumstances and see that God's character is good. It's just that things don't always happen in the timing you want, and they may not even happen on this earth, in this life, and begin to take the long view. We're going to look at Malachi 2, 17 through 4, 6 this morning. We're going to see how Malachi addresses a group of short-sighted people like you and me. Start in chapter 2, the very last verse of chapter 2, verse 17. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? And then you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Now skip down to chapter 3, verse 13. Similar charge, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. So here, right at the beginning, Malachi says, look, you've worn God out with your questions, and you're wearying him with your words, and they go, well, how have we done that? Well, you call the evil good, You call the arrogant blessed because you don't believe that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. 
And as a result, you keep questioning, you keep asking, you're impugning God's character. Now, at first glance, it's easy for us to go, look, these seem like perfectly good questions. I mean, all of us have asked from time to time about the problem of evil. Why is it that bad things happen to good people and good things seem to happen to bad people? We've all asked that question. Maybe we have uh, non-Christian friends or family who have asked us those questions. And so we begin to talk about that issue. And you go, that's a, that's a legitimate question, right? I mean, when things are not going well, when there's a tragedy, when there's a catastrophe in our lives, we may say, where is God? Doesn't even have to be a tragedy, right? Could be just those small things of life. When I mentioned we drove 16 hours back from Colorado, about an hour or two before we hit College Station, uh, kids are getting riled up, they're getting restless, they're ready to be out of the car, so am I, so is my wife, and we hit construction traffic. Why, God? Right? Why are the righteous punished? I've worked so hard to get us almost home, right? And all of a sudden, your whole view of life and the world and God is called into question. And so we go, yeah, I understand that question. We face death and sin and pain all around us in small ways and in large ways. And so on its surface, you go, this seems like a legitimate question. Here's the problem. They weren't asking it sincerely. Right, their question, remember, is this. Where is God's justice? The problem is this. They were the wicked people. They were the wicked people. So they're going, hey, God, why don't you reward the righteous and punish the wicked? But they are the wicked ones. And we're going to see that as we continue in the passage. They have so lost faith in God's character that they've begun to violate the law. Now, remember, these people are still under the law of Moses. This is before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so these people are still living in Israel under the law of Moses. And they've begun to violate God's covenant because they say, look, God, you made promises. Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, that those who would obey you, if the people would obey you, you would bless our crops and allow us to stay on the land and you'd provide for us. And that if we didn't, we would be punished and cursed. And yet we look around and we don't trust your justice right now. So they begin to sin. And there's a whole litany of sins that God charges these people with. They are the wicked. And imagine for a minute that I sat down uh, for lunch with Blake and Julie, right? Blake, you're teaching pastor here who gave the announcements. I sit down with Blake and Julie and my wife and we're going to eat at Chick-fil-A, right? We can't do it today. It's Sunday, but say we did it yesterday. All right. And we're going to eat. And Blake's favorite meal is a Chick-fil-A sandwich with waffle fries and cookies and cream shake, right? Your mouth is watering just thinking about it. All right. So we sit down and we're going to eat. And right before he takes a bite, I go, I can't afford to buy that meal. And so I push Blake on the ground and I grab his food. And I start to run out and I'm drinking his shake. And as I run out, I say, God, why don't you punish the wicked and reward the righteous? Okay, that's exactly what's going on in Malachi. They are oppressing the poor and the vulnerable and the weak. And then they go, God, where are you? It's not a sincere question. They're using these questions as an excuse to justify their sin. And so God charges them. You're hypocrites. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 12. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me 
says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So God says, look, you are hypocrites and hypocrites will be judged. And he charges them with a number of, of sin, sorcery. That is, they were turning to magic and incantations to try to get their crops to grow, or they might seek the blessing of the dead. They might try to summon the dead. They were engaged in adultery, which is a way of saying, God, you haven't provided for me in terms of my family. Maybe you haven't given me sons who would be able to work the ground and keep my inheritance, so I'll turn to another woman other than my wife. God, I don't trust you when you say that it's better to marry within the nation of Israel people who believe in God, so I'm going to turn to the wives of the Canaanites. They oppressed the vulnerable and the poor because they felt they didn't have enough money. You find in other places in Malachi, they are not only withholding their tithes, but what they're doing is they're supposed to give the first and the best of their flocks and their crops, right? So if you have the firstborn male sheep, you bring that as an offering to God and it has to be unspotted, unblemished, not crippled. Instead, they're bringing the weak ones, the lame ones, the blind ones, the crippled ones, whatever they've got left over. Not only that, but some of them on their way to the temple are looking over at the impoverished man who's on the way and they go, oh, he's got a sheep. I'll just take his. Because they don't believe that God's character is consistent. He says, look, I don't change. The reason I haven't destroyed you yet is because I don't change. I'm gracious. You've continued to disobey, continue to disobey. But the day is coming when hypocrisy will be judged. But what you see is a group of men and women making excuses for their sin because they're telling themselves a story that is a lie. We do it too. We make excuses because we don't believe and don't trust God's character. Some of the excuses that they make that I think we make as well, everybody's doing it. It would have been easy for them to say, look, nobody really brings in the whole tithe. I don't have enough money to do that. Everybody does it. Everybody watches that show, even though it's full of violence, sexuality, blasphemy against God. Everybody watches it. It's funny. Everybody does it. That's what my community does. That's what the people around me do. So I grade myself on a curve. Everybody cheats a little bit at the office on their expense account, right? Everybody does it just a little bit. And so relatively, I'm doing pretty well. I don't hit my family. I don't kill anybody. I'm I'm doing okay. Everybody does it. They might also say, look, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. How how is anybody going to know whether I bring the first of my sheep or whether I bring the third or fourth, whether I bring the best or the worst? How's anybody really going to know? If I steal from that poor guy on the way to the temple, how's anybody ever going to know? Because they're going to believe me, rich guy over poor guy. No one's going to know. 
And so they tell themselves a story that God's character cannot be trusted, that God's justice will never come and no one's ever gonna know. And again, often we do the same thing. Look, if I just withhold a little bit from the IRS, who's gonna know, right? They're a band of thieves anyway. Should be allowed to do that. If I just look at a couple of websites like this, no one's really gonna know. I'll clear my history. Does it really matter? And we begin to tell ourselves a story that God doesn't see. God doesn't know. Maybe it is, look, I, I'm not really hurting anybody. This is really, my, it's my own life, it's my own time, it's my own money, it's my own body. I'm not really hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything really that bad. I'm just failing to worship, to give to God, to serve him, to love my family wholeheartedly. And so we convince ourselves that we'll be graded on a relative scale. Uh, when I was in junior high, uh, there was a history teacher that I had that used to give these tests that were the little fill in the blank, uh, I'm not, sorry, not fill in the blank, multiple choice questions, A, B, C, D. And you'd have a question, you'd have four options and little circles with the letters A, B, C, D in it. Somebody in our class figured out that you could always determine the right answer to the question because for whatever reason, on the test he gave us, the right answer was always printed slightly darker than all the other ones. I don't know why, I don't know how it happened, but somebody pointed it out to the rest of the class. Well, then for the rest of the year, I'm sure the teacher was baffled as to why everybody got 100. Best students, the worst students, hundreds, all across the board. And looking back at it, I think it's a classic example of kind of what I'm talking about here. Because look, no one's going to know if I do it or not. And everybody in the class is getting 100. If I actually study and answer as I would answer or tell the professor, we risk our 4.0 as a class. And my 4.0. Maybe I'm going to get punished. It's not really hurting anybody anyway, right? In the grand scheme of things. What's a multiple choice seventh grade history test? And yet often as we grow older, we begin to tell ourselves those same stories. And we allow sin to build and we allow it to build and we allow it to create patterns in our life because we don't trust God's justice. We don't trust God's character. And that's what's going on in Malachi. So God says, you ask me about my character. The reality is you're using that as an excuse for sin. You want to know the answer to your question, where is God's justice? The answer is it's coming. <laughs> On its way. The day of the Lord is coming near. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Now go to chapter four for a moment. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall and you will tread down the wicked 
for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The idea is this. You ask where God is. You ask when he will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. And the answer is the day is coming. It's on its way. And Malachi proceeds to lay out a basic outline of the Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord, which comes as a concept over and over and over again through the prophets, that although you don't see God's justice worked out in your life right now in every circumstance, one day he will set everything right. And those who fear him will be honored and receive life. Those who disobey will be punished. And that's the coming day of the Lord from an Old Testament perspective. Those who are college students know that at the end of each semester, you face a day of reckoning, don't you? A day of judgment. Uh, I can distinctly remember that being a student. Uh, You don't think about it in September. You think about it by the time November rolls around, December. Uh, When I was a student, we didn't go online to get our grades. Instead, we had to call sort of an automated uh, system on the phone, and we would call this system, and it would talk to you. It would go, your grade for engineering 103 is? Press 9 to continue, right? So so you'd press 7 on accident, and it would go, goodbye, and hang up on you. And then you'd have to call again and do the whole thing again. And at the end of every semester, you would go through this terrifying process of receiving this evaluation. And again, you don't think about it when school starts in August. You're just glad to have your scantrons, seeing your friends, right? You're, you're worried about the clubs and your life and all this kind of stuff. Around November, you go, I still got 12,000 pages to read before finals, That paper that was due in October, I should probably start that now, right? Because judgment is coming. Malachi says, right now, you're not thinking about the judgment of God except to say, it's it's not ever going to come. I got 15 weeks till that shows up, right? But it's coming. And he gives us a sketch even of what it will look like, a few details about the coming day of the Lord when God will vindicate his character. Okay, the when, there are two messengers we see. Chapter three, verses one through five. The first messenger we see right away in the first half of verse one says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1 in Matthew 11.10 and in Luke 7.27. Jesus quotes it to refer to John the Baptist. And in fact, at the end of chapter four, talks about Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus says that Elijah, for those who had ears to hear, was John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist do? He came before Jesus and he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Under the law of Moses, the people are being called to return to faithfulness to God. In other words, get your hearts right before God because the king is coming to offer a king, kingdom to those who trust him. That's John's message. This messenger comes to pave the way. And in the the rest of verses one through five, we have the second messenger. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. In other words, the next messenger is the Lord himself. 
And there's a little bit of sarcasm here. You delight in the covenant, right? You keep quoting to me, look, Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30 says that God will reward the righteous, punish the wicked. Where is he? Well, let's just keep doing what's wrong. God says, you love that covenant so much. Guess what? The messenger of the covenant is coming. You know what he's going to do? He is going to purify the nation. Like when you heat up gold really hot and you purify it, it's going to melt away those impurities. Like fuller's soap will bleach clothes. In other words, it's like putting bleach on a white robe. It will remove those spots and stains. He's coming. And there are two messengers, one to prepare the way, and then the Lord himself. Jesus is his name. And the day is coming in which God will be vindicated. What is it going to be? As we see from Malachi, it is the judgment of the wicked, the vindication of the righteous, of those who fear God. That is the Old Testament conception of the day of the Lord. Now, of course, we know, and we're going to look at this, nobody is truly righteous Everybody deserves judgment. And so that's where we see the next aspect of this day of the Lord. That is, when is it going to come? Well, it's actually two days. Now, the people to whom Malachi is writing don't know that, but there are two days. The first day happened when Jesus came the first time. What did Jesus do the first time? Well, when Jesus sat down in the synagogue, Luke chapter 4, he begins to read from Isaiah 61. Here's the passage that he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus says, I came to set free those who are captive, ultimately to sin. We know Jesus died on the cross in our place and he rose again. He defeated death and sin. First time he comes, he comes for this. Now, if you know Isaiah 61 that Jesus is quoting, you also know that right after this, it also says what? And the day of vengeance of our God. But when Jesus reads it in Luke chapter four, he doesn't read that part. He literally stops mid-sentence and closes the scroll. And the people were silent, it says in Luke chapter four. Why? Because he stopped mid-sentence. And they're waiting for what he's going to say. The first time he came was to provide a way for those who trust him to be vindicated and receive eternal life, to be justified. Nobody is righteous. All deserve judgment and death. And so Jesus came and died in our place and rose again to fulfill the demands of the law so that wicked men and women like you and me can receive life. The second day, the second time he comes, And Malachi puts these two days together. As we see in the New Testament, there are two. The second time he comes will look a little different. Keep your finger in Malachi and turn over to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, and I'm going to start in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself, and he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." And from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That may change your lunch plan just a little bit reading that passage. The second time he comes, it's not going to look quite the same. Uh, When you are in Sunday school, typically, uh, at least when I was a kid, the Jesus that we saw was the Jesus with the lamb around his neck and the little children gathered around and daisies and flowers and he's smiling and it's a very happy scene. Uh, We used to have those little flannel boards, right? And they would stick Jesus up there and Jesus was always happy and smiling. We never had a flannel board with Jesus with a robe dripping with blood and a sword coming out of his mouth going, come birds! Eat the flesh of the armies gathered around and then birds eating the bodies of the men and women around, right? That didn't happen in third or fourth grade Sunday school, okay? That's the same Jesus who came the first time. The second time he comes, he comes as a refining fire, as fuller's soap, as the launderer's soap to judge the wicked and to vindicate those who have trusted in him. And the day can come at any minute. Scripture is clear that the day will come any minute. Could happen while I'm talking right here. I'd be delighted if it did. First Thessalonians chapter five, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. That day is coming. Just a quick timeline of the events of the end that we see in Scripture. I hope you can see this from where you are. We see where Jesus came the first time he died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. We're now in this church age. We don't know when it will end, but it's a period of time where the gospel is being preached to all the nations until the return of Jesus Christ. He'll come back and meet his church in the air, will be taken to heaven, begin the seven-year tribulation period for the refining of the nation of Israel to trust in their Savior. We see that in Daniel 9 through 12. We see that in Matthew 24. The beast spoken of in Revelation emerges during this time, wars against Jesus. And he's eventually destroyed when Jesus comes back. That's Revelation 19, what we just read. Satan is defeated. The forces of evil are cast into the lake of fire. And Christ sets up his kingdom. And all who have trusted in him receive eternal life. But the beginning of this could happen at any moment. We don't know the day or the hour. That's what Jesus says, Matthew 24. We don't know. But we know it's coming. So in those moments where we're tempted to tell ourselves a story that is false, we remember the true story is that God's character will be vindicated. And the only way to survive that day 
is to hitch your wagon to Jesus Christ. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Because of what Jesus has done, those who believe in him no longer stand under the condemnation of the law of sin and of death. His resurrection guarantees resurrection and eternal life for those who trust in him. And now for those who do, who have that assurance that you will one day be with him, we're called to also recognize that our lives will be evaluated as well. Not to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. You don't go to heaven or hell based upon what you've done, but on what Jesus has done for you. But there will be a day where we stand before Jesus Christ and our lives are evaluated based upon how we responded to the power and the voice of the Spirit in our lives. Was I faithful to share the gospel? Was I faithful to represent Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 3 talks about it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. The day is coming when each of us as Christians will stand before Jesus Christ. And the question is, will everything I work for burn up? Or will I receive a reward? And here, well done, good and faithful servant. And so in those moments when I'm tempted to sin, in those moments when I'm anxious and can't trust God, in those moments when it seems like I can't trust his character, do I tell myself this story? That he's called me to invest my life in the values of his kingdom. Because nothing that we say or do or think will remain in the dark. All will be brought to light. When my wife Shannon was teaching seventh graders, once a year she would ask me to come in and I would give them a short unit on poetry and song lyrics and things like that. When I was a younger man, I used to write song lyrics and some poetry. And so I would talk about the structure of poetry and all of this. Well, the point of me telling you this is that I learned something standing at the front of that room, which is this. Seventh graders believe they are sneaky, but I could hear and see everything they did from the front of that room. And all of a sudden it hit me that all the way through my schooling career and particularly in junior high, I thought that the things I said to my classmates, the teacher couldn't hear. The reality is that she chose to ignore a lot of it because she couldn't deal with all of it at once. But none of it was hidden. If they passed a note, I saw it. If they whispered to their friends, I heard it. Squirming in their chair, I see it. Many of you this morning, you think you're in the dark. I can see you, right? (laughs) I know if you're sleeping, I know if you're laughing, I know if you're not. I know if you're whispering to your friends, right? But I'm not omniscient. And God is. Nothing we say or do or think will be in the dark. It'll all come to light. God's character will be vindicated. For those who know Jesus, we look forward to that day because we'll be saved from sin and death and we can trust him. And we want to hear, well done. You've trusted me. You followed my plan. Your values were my values. And you impacted your world for Jesus Christ. So as you walk throughout your week, 
Think about this. What are the areas in which you struggle to trust him? Maybe it's money. This was an issue for the Israelites, certainly of Malachi's day. It's why they didn't tithe. It's why they didn't give. It's why they stole. They did not trust that God would provide. Most of us, from time to time, ask that question, will God provide? And the story we tell ourselves at that moment will determine how we act and how we think. Do I become anxious? Do I then refuse to give? To be generous? Do I cheat on my taxes? Do I cheat on that expense report? Because the story I tell myself about God will affect what I do in those moments. What about how you use your body? Well, God hasn't provided a spouse for me, you may say. Therefore, what I look at on the internet, the way I engage in activities with other people who I'm not married to, it's all because God, I can't trust God to provide for me. Maybe it's in the way you eat. Maybe it's in the way you use other substances. You say, I'm in pain. I can't trust God to meet those needs, to make me feel that he knows me, that he cares about me. So I'm going to medicate myself in some other way. The story you tell yourself about God and his character will affect those moments. Your time. Is my time all mine? Or do I invest all my time in my career? Do I invest all my time in my work? Do I invest all my free time in leisure? Or do I say, I want to know God? Do I go, you know, I don't really have time for that or I'm not going to have time for me. I'm not going to have time for my job. I need to work 80 hours a week so I can provide for my family so I can do this and this and this. Right? I need to play three or four hours of Halo 27 or whatever it is, right? It helps me unwind. How you think about God and the story you tell yourself about the future affects those moments. Right? How do you look at your work? How do you look at your future? All of this is dramatically affected by what you think about God's character and by what you think about what we call eschatology, what's coming at the end. Because if we believe there's a day when we'll be held to account, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again to defeat sin, it dramatically affects how we think about and act out what we say we believe. And we don't do it just so we can be nice. We don't do it because we expect a reward right here and now, right? That's the error of what we call prosperity theology. The Bible never says that God will make you rich right now for obeying him. The principle may be correct. The timing is terrible. Instead, we say one day God will set everything right. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've committed your life to those things that matter, to sharing the gospel, to knowing me, to loving the people I made. Enter into the joy of your master. So when we ask those questions of God, where are you? What are you doing? The story we tell ourselves at that moment about who he is and what he's doing dramatically affects every area of our lives. So we pray that we will live each of these areas of our life in a way consistent with the story of the scripture, that one day he's coming back and we'll set everything right. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We're grateful for it and we're grateful that Jesus died and rose again for us. And we know we can have eternal life because of that. And we praise you that one day he's coming back. I pray that would be a day we look forward to with joy as we seek you and seek to do your will. Protect us from losing sight of those things that will make an eternal impact. Protect us from short-sightedness that will keep us from seeing eternity. Father, I pray we would hear, well done and receive the reward you have prepared for us. 
And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.